All right, so if we haven't met, my name is Greg Hampton, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I would love to meet you if we haven't met yet. I'll buy you coffee um, at your, your place of choice. Theo's is open again. Round of applause for Theo's. So glad that they, they are back, you know. Um, I, I won't bring up that it was going to happen months ago, and it's just finally here, but you know. Okay, I did bring it up, didn't I? <laughs> All right, so we are going through a series called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. If anyone would like to read it, I have an extra copy. Uh, you're welcome to come and grab it at the end of the service. If you think that you'll actually uh, go through it, uh, you're welcome to bring it back when you're done or just keep it and pass it along to someone else. But this is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. And to jump into that today... Uh, 41 years ago, in December of 1982, right? Have you seen those memes where I'm old enough where people go, you know, when someone says, oh yeah, 20 years ago, you think 1993. But that wasn't 20 years ago, that was uh, 30 years ago. So 41 years ago, a vehicle called the Quiet Achiever became the first practical, long-distance, solar-powered car. Two guys named Larry and Hans drove it 2,500 miles across the entire continent of Australia using only solar power. The car they drove looked like this. Got that, Clara? Clara. <laughs> looks like this. <laughs> I believe. Any guesses what their average speed was? 12? What? 30? 12? Any other guesses? Four. Uh, 14 miles per hour. Yeah, it took them 20 days to get across the continent. I remember being a kid and reading about cars like this. I don't know which one it was, but there was a car that had gone all the way across the United States of America, and I was convinced that by the time that I was a full-fledged adult, that all of our cars would be electric and or solar-powered. Because even in the early 80s, there was a sense that if we can develop ways to travel that don't depend on oil, why wouldn't we, right? Why not give it a shot? So I pulled up the data, and Claire, are you ready? Here we go. This graph shows the growth in sales since 1982 of gas-powered trucks and SUVs. The exact opposite of what I thought would happen in my lifetime has happened. Trucks get 30% fewer miles per gallon. They cost 20 to 30% more to purchase. But last year alone, almost 80% of all light vehicles or vehicles that you're, you know, your average person buys, 80% were trucks or SUVs. Why? Some of us need a truck. It's true. But let's be honest. Most of us just need a friend that has a truck. <laughs> right? <laughs> so why, and Claire, you can take that down now if you want. So why when we have the technology and have had the technology to move forward with things like solar and electric, 
for 40 plus years, why have we gone the other direction? There's actually a lot of legitimate answers. It isn't really just one thing. New technologies are expensive, and when you develop those new technologies, you have to get people to buy them in bulk so that you can drive down the price of that new technology. The fossil fuels uh, lobby isn't a huge fan of alternatives. Uh, and then truck sales happen to go up when the price of oil goes down. It's like this sense that we think, oh, okay, gas is cheap now, so that, that, that makes it better. The, but the big reason is that battery storage technology has lagged behind our electric vehicle technology. It's not hard to make the electric vehicle. It's hard to store the energy in a way that actually makes sense for an every day person. You just can't recharge a car as quickly as you can refill a tank. You can't. And this might just be my opinion, but I put it on the list of why trucks rule the roost, why literally they sell three trucks and SUVs for every one regular car, three to one. It's because of power. Trucks are strong. Trucks are big. And they make us feel strong and big and powerful. I may never tow a seven-ton trailer, but if I wanted to, I could if I have a truck. <laughs> I may never load 2,400 pounds of gravel in the bed of my F-150, but I could if I wanted to, if I had a truck, I may never line that bed with plastic and fill it up with water and turn it into a traveling hot tub, but I could if I wanted to, if I had a truck. The president of an automotive research firm had this to say about why people buy vehicles with off-road capabilities. Quote, the thought process is this. If I want to be proud of myself, and if part of the way I imagine that is through the ideas of freedom, being able to go anywhere, do anything, and I happen to be someone who is tied to a job or family where I have so much responsibility that I can't actualize that, by purchasing this vehicle and having that capability that fills that emotional deficit or gap that I'm having, it says, I still am that person, even if I'm not doing those things. Truck has the power to do a lot of things, even make you feel more powerful, like you can do anything, go anywhere, and it can project to others what you want them to think that you are capable of, even if you never do it. Now, what happens when a pastor when church leaders that are meant to be good look at their congregation and see the quiet achiever running on the power of the sun, going 14 miles per hour, but what they really want is a Cadillac Escalade or a Range Rover with the towing package. They want to project to the outside world that I am a great leader. Look what I built. Look what I'm capable of. 
What will that person do to feel what they want to feel and project what they want to project? I remember about 10 and a half years ago when Cindy and I were in the church planners training events, one of the people got up and said, you all, every one of you in here has a picture in your mind of who, you, who your pastor is for, but you will have to pastor whoever walks through your doors. Sometimes people and pastors aren't all that pleased with who walked through their doors. And so they do whatever they can to change the makeup of who they are. Maybe not just who, but how many. But we aren't meant to hold these positions as pastors to fulfill our dreams. We're not meant to turn a minivan into a dream car, if it's a minivan. And we're not meant to turn the quiet achiever into a suburban. We're meant to be tove. We're meant to be good, in position to fulfill God's purposes. So let's open up our Bibles and see what Jesus has to say about trucks. Not actually, but about this, all right? We're going to go to two places. We're going to be Matthew 20 and 1 Peter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have paper Bibles, physical Bibles in the lobby that you can grab on your way home. They're blue. They're on the bookshelf. If you don't have that or want one of those, you can uh, download a Bible from any of the digital app stores. Matthew is the first book in what is broadly called the New Testament. I often call it the Second Testament because it came second. It's the first one at the very beginning of that. And then First Peter is toward the end of that testament. It goes Hebrews, James, uh, First Peter, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. So if you find that neighborhood, you know that you're in the right spot. And we have a tradition of giving the scriptures our full attention when uh, we read them during the message uh, in a service. And one of the ways we do that is by standing together as we are able. Or if you prefer to sit, I'll just give your attention to the scriptures, all right? If you'd like to stand with me, I'll read first from Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And later in 1 Peter 5, verse 2 says this, Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. Let us pray. God of every tribe, every tongue, every color, every nation, we thank you for the scriptures that they have persisted throughout the millennia. I pray that today, whatever you have for us to learn from them, that it would stick, that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger as we become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. Thanks, all. You can have a seat. First thing I want to point out here is that Jesus knew that power can be poisonous. Jesus knew that power can be poisonous. Most of us probably aren't surprised by that. Most of us probably agree with that. But we still tend to think that just a little power can make a smart person even smarter. Or that a little power could take a decent leader with good ideas and make them great. Think about it. We've probably all done this. Have you ever met uh, or seen someone and had the thought, if that person would just run for office, if that person were just on the school board, if that person was just our police officer, if that person were the mayor, senator, Phil in the blank. But here's the truth. Once that person becomes any of those things, the chances of them being that person anymore dissipates because power can be poisonous. And this isn't like my opinion about trucks, okay? There's actually research behind this. Research actually shows that, and I quote, subjects given power acted as if they had suffered traumatic brain injuries, becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and crucially, less adept at seeing things from other people's points of view. The research suggests that, quote, once we have power, we lose some of the capacities we needed to gain that power in the first place. That person you thought was a good person would make a great fill-in-the-blank probably was, probably would have been. But power does funny things to us. Power does weird things to us. It has the potential to change us. And Jesus knew this. Jesus taught his disciples not to wield and lord their power over others because he knew that eventually the disciples would be placed in positions of power, that they would get elevated. They'd go from being like the guys on the street arguing about which one of them was the best to actually being the one that was in charge. They ran the risk of being like a monster truck running over the quiet achiever if they weren't careful about what power was doing to them. That's why Jesus said, among you it will be different. Will should be. I want it to be. I'm telling you to let it be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must actually be a servant. Jesus said, for I did not even come to be served, but to serve. And Peter was there with them. And so later he writes a letter to a smattering of early churches around the region for them to read, for their leaders to be reminded. And he says what he learned from Jesus. Watch over the congregation willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, because you are eager to serve God. 
When we don't follow these words of Jesus that Peter reminds people of, there are warning signs. Scott and, and Laura in this book wrote that one of the first problems is vesting too much power in an individual person that has no real accountability. That sounds obvious. But why, why is that the beginning of the problems? It's because that person's approval can become like gold to the people that they lead, particularly people that they lead that also want to share in that power. They might create a culture where people learn that if they just affirm and praise the pastor, they gain status. They get promoted. They get positioned higher in the congregation. I think that it's actually a gift from Jesus that I don't like compliments. It's not that I'm insecure. I have plenty of security. Ask Jen. She knows how full of myself I can be. But when I get compliments, it's really, I, it's not that I don't believe them. It's that there's something in me that immediately goes, don't let that go to your head. Oh, it's not, it's not, don't, it's not, don't believe that. It's don't let them think that you want what they're saying too much. Because if they learn that you live for this, then you will create a culture that lives and dies on whether they like you. And not just for me, but for the people in the congregation, that whether someone likes me or not will actually affect what kind of experience they have in this congregation. And that is not healthy. The opposite is also true. Scott and Laura write, people that disapprove get degraded. They get demoted. Maybe talked down about behind closed doors, but also in their actual roles in the congregation. You used to be director of this. Well, now you're not. You used to lead this team. Well, now you don't. You used to serve twice a month. Well, now it's once a quarter. How dare you question the leader? That's not healthy. And then, when the people that are in, that are working to move their way up, see what happens to people that disagree, their fear of not being able to move up and being demoted only grows and only reinforces a circle of yes around the leader that can just hand out approval, disapproval, promotions, demotions. And then depending on the level of disagreement, you might not just get demoted, you might get removed. You might get fired. You might get asked to quietly resign and be told that you can never tell anybody why. This is, these are real things, guys. It's real things that happen. Churches have employees sign NDAs that say they cannot talk about what really happened. 
So what do we do? This church, the house, what do we do to avoid that kind of culture? Really, that's what all of the next following weeks are going to be about. They're going to be about the elements of a healthy, of a tov, good culture. But I actually want to spend a few minutes here, probably more than a few minutes, if I'm honest, talking about our structure here at the house. We are considered what is called a staff-led church model. That means that as the lead pastor, I lead a lead team, people that have leadership over separate teams. And so that's Alex Campbell. He leads the student ministry. It's Andy Boswell. He's the treasurer. It's Chris Britton. He's one of the teaching pastors currently on sabbatical. So you don't, don't, don't ask him questions about his next sermon. Uh, Jen Swift, associate pastor. Kelsey Campbell, associate media director. Chris Olson does facility care. Robin Messerly, the treehouse kids director. And Scott McConnell, who is our first impressions director. We meet as a team on a monthly basis. We talk about what's coming up. We ask for updates, how everyone is doing. And we try to together plan for things that are happening in the church. And then, depending on each of those individual persons' availability, I meet with most of them individually on a monthly basis to encourage them and to see how I can equip them for the ministry that they are doing in the church. In a staff-led model, small decisions are localized to team leaders. Robin in Treehouse, Alex in the Shed, if they want to do an event with their leaders, or shed, uh, if Alex was like, hey, I'm going to invite all the students to come to the building this Friday night for movie night, he does not need my permission. He doesn't even have to run it by the team. He leads that ministry. He can decide to do things like that for their ministries. But if they needed an additional budget for that that wasn't already budgeted, yeah, then they would run that up the uh, flagpole. They'd ask me, and I'd go, okay, I, I can say yes to this much, but I can only say yes to this much because I have a limit. I am not supposed to. I say supposed to, right? Because that is how rules work. I could say I'm not allowed to, but really I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to spend more than 250 unbudgeted dollars without asking the treasurers for approval. And so if they need 100 bucks, I can go, yeah, absolutely. Just get us the receipts. We will take care of that. Um, Actually, just this past week, I made a, uh, a new budget request. I asked if we could start having donuts once a month. And because uh, a number of people have asked for that, so it's not, it's not my idea. And I asked, hey, can we start paying Robin something as the treehouse director? Can we start paying her something on a monthly basis? Now, here's the deal. That is a hard sell when you missed budget by $1,100 last month. But I want it to be on their radar. And I said, hey, let's think about this. Is this something that we could do? Can we take the chance? Can we just risk it and do it? And here's the absolute honest truth. There was a moment in the conversation, in that text thread, where I could tell that someone in the conversation was deferring to me. And I could have, if I wanted to, pushed it. I could have been the monster truck that went over the quiet achiever and just said, we're going to do it. And I could have even made it sound holy. Well, we're just going to do this on faith, guys. 
I really think that the Lord always provides. God always has what we need. Our bank account's never been zero. The Lord will give us what we need so that we can do this good thing. But we have treasures for a reason. And while the truth is that they wanted to make the change, we all agreed that it wasn't the, fi- the most wise financial decision. And so the answer was, let's wait and see. Let's see how this month goes. Let's see if that turns around. And then we have elders. Eric Rowell is one of our elders, and Jen Swift is what would be called a staff elder. She's an elder of the church, but she's also on the staff. My wife, Cindy, is an elder, and I am an elder. And if you're thinking, oh, that doesn't sound like that, elder board has a whole lot of power to tell Greg what to do because they're all friends, da-da-da, it would be important for you to know that our elder board is not a governing board. Our elder board is a spiritual board. Spiritual meaning that if someone is sick, if someone needs encouragement, if someone needs counseling, we call the elders together in order to pray for those people. Because in a staff-led model, we, have, we try to build consensus as much as possible, but we lean on the accountabilities that we have built in for those, and we expect the elders to be people of prayer. But I also want to say that the elders are people that you can trust. That if someone in our congregation is mistreating you, and this is the truth, if I am mistreating you, Eric and Jen in particular, you know, you may not want to go to my wife. But if I'm doing something that is sinning against you, then you should feel completely free that Eric and Jen are not going to take my side immediately if you go and tell them that I've done something wrong. And I encourage you to do that. Because that's the way that it should be. And then, in addition to our local team, in addition to our elders, we have what's called overseers. Overseers are like elders that are part of other churches. They are pastors of other churches. They care about me. They care about the health of our congregation. And in particular, they are meant to pray for me and give me advice when needed. Because in the event that I were to be accused of something, and let's say that you went and talked to one of the elders, and we weren't able to work things out here locally, our bylaws say that then the the overseers are supposed to be called, and the overseers have the authority to fire, discipline, suspend, or replace me as pastor. I am not without accountability. That does not mean that people always know what that accountability is, right? Some of you are hearing this for the first time. And part of the reason some of you are hearing this for the first time is because since COVID, we have not gotten back into the practice of having a new members class where we would normally share all of those things. And so I was talking to Scott McConnell recently, and we've talked about how with our new emphasis on first impressions, we need to start doing in about about the house thing again, where you would hear all of these things and be able to ask questions about what that means. Now, uh, just so you know, um, I don't want to belabor the point, but in case you need to know, the two overseers are Michael Umenauer, who I have known for 31 years. He was my youth pastor. He has known me since I was just a little lad. 
and he was a youth pastor at First United Presbyterian, where I went to church. He currently pastors a church in California, just out of Sac- outside of Sacramento. And the other overseer is Ross Parsley. I've known him for 17 years. He was the worship pastor at New Life Church when Cindy and I first moved to Colorado. And um, both of them, both of them have seen everything that can happen in a church happen. So they are more than qualified to help sort out anything that might happen. Now, I could, if I wanted to, make it sound like the system that we have is working perfectly. I could just end it there and be like, so that's what you get, guys, and it's awesome. It's absolutely perfect. But a system is only as good, system is only as good as you work it. And you can only work it as well as you communicate it. And the reality is that we've not done a good job of communicating that. We can use COVID as an excuse. But the truth is that when COVID hit, I kept individually meeting with leaders. But it's only been a month since we started having our team leaders all together again for a monthly gathering. The truth is that our elders have not gotten together to pray together as often as we probably should. And the truth is that having overseers that live on the other side of the country makes it easy for one of us to forget that we had a phone call coming up. Because we don't see each other on a regular basis. A system is only as good as you work it, and it can only work as well as you communicate it. So coming up on 10 years as a church, I want to make sure that we have a system and a structure that shapes a good culture that is safe, that is healthy, that is not the kind of culture that would allow me to hide in a golden tower far away from any real accountability. That is one of the reasons that tomorrow night, when we have our monthly leadership team meeting, this is going to be one of the things that we talk about as a team. How do we make sure we communicate this? How do we make sure that Greg actually talks to his overseers, that we get the elders together on a regular basis? How do we make sure that people know how to reach out to someone safe if something happens? Because we can stand up here and say, we're healthy, we're healthy, we're healthy, we're healthy as much as we want. But unless we actually have things in place for people to make healthy decisions, then we're just lying. And I don't want to do that. So tomorrow night, we're going to be discussing that as a team. What I know about myself is this. I know, I believe that I am called and that I am meant to care for this congregation. That God has entrusted this to me for this time in my life to watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what I will get out of it, but because I am eager to serve the Lord. And I am not immune to the effects of power. I do not want to turn into a monster truck driving over the quiet achiever. When the quiet achiever may have only been going 14 miles per hour, 
but it did so in a way that was only powered by the sun. That is beautiful. So I'm grateful for the role that I have here. I'm grateful that I get to be your pastor. But let's all continue to pray for each other and for the future of who we are together so that we can be good. Amen? Amen.